Hi, and welcome back to OA On Air via social distancing. I'm Kyan Isaacson. This week, it's 321GO with Cosmo Macero. Then I'm joined by Stephanie Ahmed from the Massachusetts Coalition of Nurse Practitioners to talk about the fact that nurse practitioners now have full practice authority here in Massachusetts. And of course, Two Minutes with Tom. Hello and welcome to another edition of 321GO on OA On Air, our weekly look into the world of public affairs, culture, business, and the economy. Some great topics this week. Joining me here on 321GO is Kyan Isaacson. Hello. The official voice of OA On Air. Kyan, how are you? I'm good. How are you? Are you ready for the big game? Sure. The big game. I think we've had this conversation every year where I talk about the big game because... You can't say Super Bowl if you're selling something, but I don't think we're selling anything except our creative and unique ideas. Uh, which yeah, are- our fantastic conversation and thoughts. Exactly. <clears throat> so let's start there with the Super Bowl because it's this Sunday. Mm-hmm. And hey, familiar face in the Super Bowl, Tom Brady. Another familiar face, um, Rob, Gronk- <laughs> Rob Gronkowski, mm-hmm. uh, both former Patriots, both multiple Super Bowl champions and uh, playing for the Tampa Bay Buccaneers <clears throat> for the first time ever. Several major brands are not advertising uh, on the Super Bowl. There's, there's a lot of different ways to sort of slice up the marketing around the Super Bowl this year. What what have you picked up on, or what what grabs your interest? Because I know you're not a huge football fan. I'm not. I used to be it sort of waned over time. Um, you know, good for Tom Brady. He's been he's been a class act. I've been baffled by the amount of headlines and stories written about how he has, you know, kept his head held high and not taken any low blows. I don't was anyone really expecting him to do that. It's not what he does. He's just going out there, he's playing good football, got himself back in the Super Bowl. I will watch, not making a big to do of it probably have it on and kind of come in and out of the room. I'm wondering if that's sort of where the the decision about marketing comes into play, a lot less advertising dollars being spent. Um, But at the same time, I almost, part of me thought it might go the other way because it's an event that people can participate in from home. So I'm wondering, will viewership be up? Uh, The weekend is the halftime show. I'm excited for that. He is investing a lot of money to make it a full-on production. Um, So they're really trying to build out something that people sitting at home watching, hopefully in small groups, um, can feel like they're they're part of something and feel a little bit of normalcy. And that's always good. Um, But then there's the headlines of this being another super spreader event. And it's like, gosh, people, no football game is worth taking us back to high spiking COVID numbers. Yeah, no, that's <clears throat> I'm a big football fan. I've you know, been going to Patriots games my, my whole adult life and and, before, and my teenage years. Uh, <clears throat> always attend or often attend uh, a pretty big Super Bowl event. No real interest this year in doing that. I, I, and I don't think, it, you know, you, you, you watch the game at home with your family and that's fine. It's interesting with regard to viewership. I wonder if if you take all those larger Super Bowl parties and big, big groups at bars, and then you break that down into a, a lot of people instead are are going to be home, 
doesn't that translate to more televisions tuned into the game? If That's it's what I was thinking. Fewer people per television, so shouldn't ratings go up unless unless so many people only watch as part of that group? But I, I don't think that's necessarily the case. I mean, I think there's there's, a, but at any given party, you know, the people who aren't really interested aren't watching anyway, so they're not yeah. going to watch. But they're not watching any. I don't know. The advertising thing to me was interesting. Um, different companies have taken very different stances, but. To your point, a lot of people sort of walking away and saying this is not worth the bang for our buck this year. Um, I would be interested as to where they're spending it instead. Like, are they? I mean, alcohol sales are not down in you know COVID era, so it's not like I don't think Bud Light is struggling financially. Um, are they putting more of that money into digital advertising? I don't know. This is. I think it's an interesting case study. Yeah, and I mean. <clears throat> I, I get it that at least some, um, you know, marketing folks are saying, you know, it's we're in still in the midst of the pandemic and there's been so much, uh, um, you know, unrest and, and, and people are suffering. I get that. But but the Super Bowl is a very nice dose of normalcy Then you you that you're not supposed to leave your house really for. I mean, I, I, yes, people people experience it often at big Super Bowl parties, but. It, it's a televised event designed to be watched in your home. I I, I think um, it's it's a you know it's a, a good thing for people to to, to sort of uh, um, hunker down and 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 feel like they're part of something big with a lot of other people just experiencing it individually. And and to my earlier point, yes, I think that with the halftime show, I, I recently heard that the weekend. Um, invested like seven million of his own dollars or something outrageous um, because he wants to make it a full-on production that people can really feel entertained by while sitting at home. This is one of the few events that we're just supposed to watch from the couch. So uh, do that on your own couch. Do it, yeah. So do it. Stay home. Watch from the couch. Don't leave. Don't leave. Yeah. Order some takeout. Call it a day. Exactly. All right. Should be fun. Should be interesting. Always, uh, Always a big oh, real one. Quick, who do you predict to win? You know, I made a big deal a few weeks ago of uh, saying, you know what, I'm a lifelong AFC fan, so I know that Tom Brady and Gronk are going to the Super Bowl, but I'm I'm going to get behind the Chiefs. I, I, I'm I'm wavering. I mean, I, I think <clears throat> you have to put as strong as the Kansas City Chiefs are in their offense and their their quarterback Patrick Mahomes. How do you bet against Tom Brady in a big game like this? I mean, he's no been to so many. He's, he's been to so many that he's actually, you know, lost a handful of them, 30 or 35, 40% of them. But how do you bet against him? I just don't see it happening, you know? I mean, again, I'm not emotionally really invested in either team this year. That being said, uh, you know, it's always fun to watch Tom and Gronk play and, and, and win together. So here's hoping. Let's say it's a good day for football. <laughs> All right, Kyan, let's move on next to a little piece of history um, and set it up for us. I can't believe it's been 14 years since the renegade guerrilla marketing stunt that sent shockwaves and shivers through the city of Boston <laughs> over, uh, you know, oh, 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 what the heck was the name of that? Now, it wasn't Comedy Central. It was, it was uh, Aqua Teen Hunger Force, 
was the name <laughs> of the show. Yeah. Uh, I'm, 2005. <laughs> I'm sadly familiar with the show. Uh, yes, in 2007, Aqua Teen Hunger Force had a really rogue guerrilla marketing campaign uh, in a, a handful of cities throughout the country, but Boston was reeling from it. Um, and I think while other cities didn't give it all that much attention, we went into full, you know, like bomb squad mode and people and officials were panicked. Yeah, it, it, it was, you know, and um, the mayor at the time, may you rest in peace, uh, Mayor Tillman, he was very angry. Uh, and, you know, and it, and it wound up just being a, a, a stunt, a hoax. Uh, I remember at, at uh, Wellington Circle, I'm sorry, no, Wellington Circle, that's Medford, Cleveland Circle is Jefferson uh, <laughs> Hill, at Leverett Circle, coming around the bend and seeing those things, I'm like, what is that? But I don't remember panicking, I just remember like, what? what is that? And, 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 and it, it sent the city into, uh, you know, a, a period of uh, unease until they sort of figured it out. But um, man, 14 years since the guerrilla marketing stunt that shocked the city of Boston. And honestly, what it set up, I mean, guerrilla marketing is, it's a great fun way to promote a product or an idea or an organization. Um, perhaps if all else has failed sometimes, but also just if you're looking to do something different. Um, in watching the recap of the 2007, you know, Aqua Teen Hunger Force debacle, um, somebody, one of the newscasters called it unsuccessful. And I'm like, I would argue totally in the opposite direction. Everybody was talking about Aqua Teen Hunger Force, whether or not you had ever heard of the show before in your life. That was its goal. And it was accomplished. They ended up having to settle with the city for $2 million. Um, and my guess is that it was still worth it in the end because of the publicity that they promoted and the coverage that they got of people talking about this show. Indeed. I think one of my favorite forms of guerrilla marketing is the flash mob where people just break into song or dance. I, I remember uh, potentially being involved in a flash mob concept at a store opening and and the flash came, yeah. but the mob didn't follow. And uh, <laughs> we had about a half a dozen people walking around, half a dozen people walking around a retail store singing and coming together. And, and, and instead of everyone being marveling, they were like, why are they doing that? Tell them to stop that. They, they were too busy enjoying the free food and uh, drinks, if I remember correctly. That's I right. still I still thought it was fun. Um, it was it was a great idea that uh, and we and we executed properly. I think people just weren't ready for a flash mob inside uh, <laughs> uh, a beer and wine store, which is what it was. Anyway, well, all right. More real marketing to come, I'm sure. Indeed, I, I look forward to to uh, someday uh, uh, pulling off a very successful flash mob. <clears throat> all right, Cayenne. Uh, thing number three and final the. Um, uh, certainly the Boston housing market, the housing market in Massachusetts, quite frankly, nationwide, one of the, like the stock market, one of those things that just sort of defies, um, uh, or maybe it doesn't defy logic. It's just, it's, a, it's, I think there was a period about, you know, 10 months ago where you thought, gee, everything economic is going to just collapse and we're all going to be just, you know, done. And in fact, you know, 
the housing market has gone through the roof in many places, certainly here uh, in Massachusetts and greater Boston. Story, uh, interesting story on the globe, how that compares, and I, and I, I posted something about this on Facebook because I was um, relieved and impressed that right up front, the writer um, make sure that people understand his comparison, which is interesting and a good conversation starter is also not apples to apples. And that is, he says, basically last in the past year, two people, a household of two people working full-time minimum wage jobs <clears throat> wouldn't even come close to earning the equal uh, income that would be equivalent to the appreciation and value on a house of a certain size in Dedham, Massachusetts. And um, I, and I want to talk about what that means, but I just I thought the most important thing was that's two different things. One of them is income, and one of them is wealth. And, and you you know, income is like that's the fuel for your household that pays your bills and so forth. You can convert some of your income to wealth by putting it in the bank. And then when your house appreciates, that's not income. That's that's directly goes to your net worth. You can convert some of that to income by liquidating some of your house with a second mortgage. But they're not the same thing. Anyway, I don't want to get into a red herring. The point is, <laughs> boy, minimum wage just is just not cutting it for a lot of families. Yeah, I think what the story did was make a very stark contrast of how low minimum wages um, and how it is easier for the rich to continue getting richer. And I use rich fairly loosely here. Um, but that the pandemic, of course, has brought all of that to light that and and he says in the in the story, um, John Gorey for the Globe, that these figures would cast a startling contrast in any year. And he says, but against a pandemic that has stolen the lives and livelihoods of black and brown people with disproportionate ruthlessness, it's particularly jarring because even as people of color are more likely to have lost their jobs due to the pandemic, the bulk of housing wealth is accrued to an already privileged class of white homeowners. That in it, I think that paragraph or those couple sentences was really the, the point of the whole story that this continues to be an issue in so many ways and in so many avenues of it is so hard to dig out. And then if you're already out of it and sort of on top, so to speak, you're just going to continue growing. And how do we, you know, the, the bigger philosophical question is, how do we fix that fundamentally? It, it, it's a good question. I mean, I, I have generally been... <clears throat> of the mind, uh, speaking carefully, that, that minimum wage jobs are, are not really designed to and, and to support a family or a household, their entry level, or even or, or early level, early career kind of first or second opportunities. At least that's the role that they should play in someone's <clears throat> work life. The problem is <clears throat> they often have to have to play a bigger role and that's when you run into a problem that, that you know when, when, when people just there's not a lot of opportunity and and they have to sustain their household uh at those wages it becomes really 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 difficult and and people living on, on on the margin so um but i agree it's you know even two incomes at that level you're, you're going to be challenged yeah it's it's a problem and i 
I don't know the solution. Um, you're not supposed to present a problem without a solution, but uh, something's got to give, particularly in the wake of a pandemic that really did just put a, you know, it made that line in the sand even thicker and even even deeper. Yeah. I think one solution maybe figure out ways to <clears throat> help people um, advance further and faster because even because one solution that's often debated is oh, let's raise the minimum wage, right? Um, but you can only raise it, and I think everyone would, not everyone, but many people would agree to this, you can only raise it to a certain level before you then cause, you know, significant economic damage to the, or damage to the business model of certain types of uh, uh, companies and organizations, but- Particularly small businesses. Exactly. But even at an, you know, an incremental increase, you still, you know, you, it's still not going to get it done. So it's, how do we get people into the next level of employment that's above the minimum wage? And maybe that's an area. And then you've got, you know, people like Andrew Yang, um, running for mayor of New York, who was really, you know, built a lot of following around the call for a guaranteed basic income. And it's a lot of different ideas, but it's uh, the wage gap, the wealth gap has just grown, uh, you know, astronomical. Yep. <clears throat> Excellent. Um, great conversation. Thank you. That's going to do it for this week's edition of Three, two, one, go. Programs recorded remotely from locations around the Commonwealth and nationwide. Our producer is Catherine O'Brien. I know her last name. <laughs> uh, I know her last name. Um, I'm uh, I'm Cosmo Macero. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. Hi, this is Kyan Isaacson. I'm joined today by Stephanie Ahmed, the Legislative Director for the Massachusetts Coalition of Nurse Practitioners. Stephanie, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. And you are on today to talk about the fact that Massachusetts has recently become the 23rd state in the United States to grant full practice authority to nurse practitioners. So first of all, congratulations. Thank you. We're excited about this, as you can well imagine. This is a really great step and a great decision for the Commonwealth. Uh, for people who may not understand, can you explain what exactly it means now that nurse practitioners have full practice authority here in Massachusetts? That's a great question. A lot of people don't understand that um, nursing practice is regulated at the state level. So unlike a physician who has the same practice, no matter what state they're in, nursing practice can be a little bit different state to state. And there has been tremendous variation in practice for advanced practice nurses in particular, um, who have had barriers that are um, put in place for optimizing our role and our outcomes that aren't necessarily based upon um, good sound science. And in this instance, um, Massachusetts has been successful in removing those artificial barriers to care, as was actually recommended by the Institute of Medicine in 2010 and again in 2015. And, and that recommendation was made by them 
recognizing that the country was advancing with increasing access to care or increasing access to insurance, Obamacare at the time, or in Massachusetts, it was actually Romney care because we preceded that. But giving patients access to insurance isn't actually synonymous with giving them access to care. And so the, the, the number one recommendation by the Institute of Medicine was to remove those artificial barriers, recognizing as people were having increased access to insurance, they would actually need to be able to access providers. And in Massachusetts, you know, it's significant that we've been able to remove those artificial barriers. And for the average patient seeking care, what this means to them is that they are going to actually have increased access to cost-effective, high-quality um, high care that they may not have had access to otherwise. And sometimes um, that can feel a bit surprising, particularly to people in Massachusetts, where I would say, you know, I always joke and say, we um, live and work in medical Hollywood, and we take for granted that everybody in the state has access to healthcare but that isn't entirely true. And what we do know is that access used to be an issue primarily the further out you went from say the, the, the capital and further out you went from Boston, people were experiencing challenges with access to care. So out in Western Mass, Cape and the Islands. But over the last several years, that access has become increasingly difficult um, for patients who are seeking uh, primary or family care right in Boston, where the wait times are the highest, amongst the highest in the country, and we're a state that has the most number of physicians per capita. So, um, you know, that's, a, that's surprising that people in Massachusetts lack access to care. And what I would say is the issue around access to care is not just an issue of rural America anymore. It is something that we are seeing in big cities such as Boston or New York City, where you've got a, a, a high prevalence of physicians, but people are still waiting unusually long times to access care. So as I had said previously, Massachusetts is the 23rd state in the country to grant nurse practitioners full practice authority. Uh, what have the other 22 states seen, or what can we expect based off of what has happened in those states upon nurses receiving full practice authority? Thank you. That's a, that's a great question because one of the things we know is that while Massachusetts is a health leader in the country, we led the country with health reform, the, by virtue of the fact that 22 other states have already granted full practice authority, you can see that we've really lagged in positioning nursing practice to address the important issues within the state around healthcare, which are primarily focused on um, access, cost effectiveness, um, and you know, the Federal Trade Commission looked at Massachusetts and looked at the barriers that were in place and actually opined in 2015 that if we removed those artificial barriers, we would experience a decrease in cost and an increase in innovation. So as you think about um, uh, the other states, you know, they, they've been able to position their NP workforce to impact the overarching goals for health and wellness in those states. 
I would say that um, we've had a great relationship with Governor Baker and other people um, on Beacon Hill who recognize and value that what um, nurse practitioners have to offer towards care. Um, and when you look at some of these other states, you know, we do see that um, cost is driven down. We also see um, a decreased number of controlled substances that are prescribed, primarily looking at benzodiazepines and narcotics, which I think is, is important for us to um, continue to be aware of and continue to discuss. While COVID um, has been predominantly on our minds pre-COVID, we talked a lot about the impact on behavioral health and substance use disorder um, that it was having in our state. And this is a, a place where nurse practitioners can really have an impact um, and uh, help to align the goals of the state with the care offered to people and really offer life-saving treatment to patients. I'm sure many people don't understand exactly what the regulations were and what this change means in terms of when they go to an office uh, for a doctor's appointment or a, an appointment with a nurse practitioner, which many people see on a regular basis. Um, can you walk through some of that and what patients should expect going forward now that nurse practitioners have their full practice authority? So, you know, we, we had a legislative push one time that was really focused on helping people to understand that we were seeking to change the language around um, the regulatory issues related to our practice, not the outcomes of care. So I agree with you that this transition should feel seamless to the average patient who's seeking care or should feel like at some point, because although we've passed the law, the regulations still need to be written and enacted. So um, when it does finally uh, get enacted, hopefully people feel like they've got access uh, more quickly. Um, so it isn't going to feel like, gee, all of a sudden there's this change. And I think the reality that people need to understand is that they'll continue to go um, seek care, that nurse practitioners are held to the same quality and outcome standards that our physician colleagues are held to where we have a scope of practice overlap. So if you're a diabetic or someone who has cardiovascular disease and you're going in and you're getting, you know, um, medication for your diabetes or, or cardiovascular disease, the NP is held to the same standards as the physician. So that shouldn't feel different at all. And in some instances, you're going to a physician's office, but being treated by an NP. So already, so that should feel the same. But what this law does is it does remove some of the burdensome administrative oversight requirements, right? Um, that really haven't been demonstrated to correlate with enhanced outcomes of care. And an example of that, which I can give you, is that in Massachusetts, NPs are required to have oversight for their prescriptive practice with a physician. And, um, you know, previously they were required to review a subset of their prescriptions with this physician colleague. Doing a retrospective review of something 
I prescribed a quarter ago really doesn't help prospectively ensure the good health of the patient or prevent um, adverse events if there was something inappropriate. And so they've removed the requirements for physician oversight for the prescriptive practice of NPs. Um, and I think what that does is it removes an unnecessary administrative burden, but it has a benefit to patients, providers, and I would say employers. So as providers, we don't have to spend time doing something that doesn't contribute to the health and well-being of patients and really distracts from seeing patients. That's the first thing. So it creates access to providers by you know, utilizing our time appropriately, but from an employment perspective and a patient perspective, it also in, uh, it allows employers to utilize their workforce in such a way that you can take the right patient and, and place them with the right provider in the right care sitting, setting and really have a, a, a control over the model of care and an impact on care that, um, influences the economics and outcomes of care in a positive way. Sure. So all um, nurse practitioners are building off of their training as a baccalaureate prepared nurse um, or a registered nurse and in a minimum are prepared at the master's level with truthfully um, a trend towards doctoral preparedness. So now many of them are doctoral prepared, but the requirement is a minimum of a master's degree. Um, and there's 40 years of peer-reviewed data that supports that the outcomes of master's prepared NPs is exceptional. So while we see the doctoral trend, it's not essential. Um, at least not, you know, it's not required that people have a doctorate degree. We know the outcomes are great. I think from a systems perspective and a leadership perspective, there's lots of benefits to being doctoral prepared. And in fact, I am uh, an example of a nurse practitioner who's doctoral prepared. Additionally, I think it's important for people to understand that we meet national standards around NP education. And so the minimum, as I said, is that master's degree. There's curriculum standards around um, what do people study, and particularly you hear them talk about the P's, anatomy and physiology, pharmacology, pathophysiology, physical assessment, things like that, which are required, clinical hours, which are required, specialty-focused clinical hours, right? So people are um, become boarded. They sit for a national um, exam, which boards them for, say, family practice or acute care or gerontology or adult gero, different, you know, they become population-specific focused and their um, programs are nationally accredited, must meet rigorous standards, and the exams meet rigorous standards. Um, there's 40 years of peer-reviewed data, as I mentioned, and when you look at the outcomes of advanced practice nurses, 
they are as good or sometimes even better than physician colleagues where that scope of practice overlap um, occurs. Some examples of this that I could give you, for example, is heart failure. You know, in, in um, roles where advanced practice nurses are nurse practitioners, um, which is a subset of an advanced practice nurse, do a lot of engagement, education, and coaching with patients, we really shine in a model like this. So you would see um, exceptional outcomes around congestive heart failure. You would see that with diabetes and the literature supports that our outcomes do indeed exceed physician colleagues in, in those areas um, or in other areas where they're equal. And you know, you're looking at things like mortality when there would be an expectation to, um, you know, to, to intervene on behalf of a patient and prevent that mortality. Um, you're looking at other deleterious outcomes for patients in which NPs are as good or if not better than physician colleagues. And so there's been a lot of, I would say, um, lobbying on behalf of physician professional organizations not to have this advancement. But this advancement has occurred in 22 other states plus the District of Columbia, plus Guam, plus the VA who's advanced this where, they, uh, where they're able to around prescriptive practice. And what we don't see is increased adverse outcomes of care. So there's no, um, you're not gonna see an uptick in mortality in these states. You're not going to see an uptick in um, malpractice insurance claims or costs. And insurance companies, are pretty savvy and they're not going to lose money. The cost for um, NP insurance does not change in these states once it gets passed. So I think what you see is the outcomes are very good. And I think what we should expect in Massachusetts is that um, you know, at the practice level, I think NPs and physicians have always worked collaboratively together. And I think the health system and our patients needs us to continue to work in such a fashion. Um, and so what I would expect to continue to see is that we all work collaratively together and, and put the guild sort of mentality and leave that to the professional organizations aside and um, where the rubber meets the road in the clinical environment that we continue to collaborate and work well um, on behalf of our patients. In the spring of 2020 and the early days of the COVID pandemic, Governor Baker, through executive order, granted greater practice authority to nurse practitioners to help with a healthcare system that was really struggling, um, as so many others were. And now we've seen what that can do, and it's now permanent. The collaboration is key. The increased access was really a large part of that. And I think what people should expect going forward. What are your thoughts and takeaways based on just the last year? Yeah, I, I think the impact on the role 
was more on the removal of the unnecessary administrative burdens, truthfully. And so that, that those burdens and requirements for oversight were removed um, by Governor Baker in an executive order. And um, NPs continued to practice the way that they've always practiced, you know, but without that administrative requirement for oversight. The effect of that in the practice environment was again to enhance the access. I think it um, encouraged people to maybe see the NP role differently and recognize the importance of the work that we do in the healthcare system as a whole and maybe um, helped people to want to um, I guess remove those access barriers or have the courage to remove those access barriers, seeing the quality of the contributions that were made. And some of the things that did occur, um, I, I think um, were like an example I can give you is that we took nurses out of ambulatory settings and had to move them to the inpatient environment as there was a shortage of um, providers you move into a functional nursing model where you put people together um, to work in, in a model that might be different than what they did, but, with, but is safe and within their ability to do so. And um, so you saw NPs come in and be functionally trained to um, go in and work in an ICU and do other aspects of care that they may not have been previously doing monitoring patients, proning patients, working on um, interprofessional teams that were contributing to the well-being of those patients, working in community settings, creating access for patients who were seeking care and making sure that those patients were getting access to the right level of care. So, I, I mean, I think those are things that NPs would normally be doing in the community setting, um, but they're the, the professional flexibility of these roles is actually quite remarkable for um, employers and community health centers and things like that to optimize um, the function of their workforce. And even for big academic medical centers who um, were able to use them in, in a different capacity, if that helps. So before we wrap up, uh, is there anything else that you would want patients or the public to know or to expect now that nurse practitioners have full practice authority here in Massachusetts um, or anything that you want to highlight or make sure that people are aware of? Yeah, I think, again, I would focus on that prior campaign that we had, that this has really been about changing the language, not the care. And so um, we want to reinforce our to the public to provide them with access to cost-effective and safe care. We want to continue to partner with the governor and the, 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 the Senate and the House to advance the overarching goals of health reform that existed pre-COVID and will become our focus again at some point in time to support the state through the COVID pandemic and to usher through a healthier Massachusetts. And just, um, you know, people shouldn't expect a change in, in their direct care, but perhaps their access and their outcomes. I, I hope 
they, they see the change in that environment. And we're grateful um, to Governor Baker and to, um, uh, you know, the, the legislators for believing in us and um, for advancing full practice authority at the state level. It really um, was somewhat surprising that Massachusetts was such a leader with health reform and we lagged here. So now we've positioned that nursing workforce and we're here and we're ready to continue to work with um, Governor Baker, Speaker Mariano, and others who have um, put their faith and trust in us. Congratulations again to you and to nurse practitioners here in Massachusetts on this victory. Uh, it's a great day and, and great news for the Commonwealth and, and patients here. So, and thank you, Stephanie, for joining us. Thank you so much. Hi, Kellyanne. I missed you last week. Oh, I missed you too. I went skiing, so so. You did. Good. <laughs> How are you? I'm doing fine. Welcome Good back to, to Two Minutes with Tom. Two Minutes with Tom and Kellyanne. What are we talking about today? I haven't talked to you since the president has uh, has been sworn into office, have I? Um, we talked, I think, three days after, but we haven't spoken since he's had a couple weeks under his belt. So, yeah. How's it going? It's been a little um, uneventful in a good way. Well, as we are speaking, Marty Walsh, the mayor of Boston, is being interviewed by the Senate Committee on Health and Labor uh, for for his appointment by the president to be the Secretary of Labor in the United States. And he's done, to this point in time, just a great job answering the questions of both the, the Democratic Senate senators and, and the Republican senators. I think he's doing a terrific job. And anyway, what a great role for him. What is the what for him? I said, what a great role for him. It's a great role for him. You know, he 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 got a start uh, in labor. He uh, he was a laborer. His his father was a, a labor leader as well. Um, and and then he went off to college. He graduated from Boston College and and got involved with with uh, more labor uh, issues around the city of Boston as a head of labor for the building trades. And then he went and ran for state representative and was successful. And then, of course, we all know that he ran for mayor and won that seat as well. But he's never forgotten where it was he came from. And that was, you know, he's a child of labor. And as he's talking to both Republican and, and Democratic senators, you know, he's, he's reminding them of his core beliefs. And he's winning their support in the process. And it's, it's, it's wonderful to watch, to be very honest with you. A, gr a great appointment by this, by this president. Yeah, and you know, in the era of bipartisanship, we, we should also mention too, as he's going to Washington D.C., people who are willing to work across the aisle, go outside of their party. Mayor Walsh, obviously, and Governor Baker have had a really strong relationship in recent years of putting politics aside to do what was necessary, and I think we would expect that to continue. I think I think he I think that's right. Yeah, he, he's not a. Um... He's not a commanding elected leader commanding from the top down. You know, he's a, he's a collaborator. He, he likes to he likes to bring people along with him, have them as part of the conversation, working on issues so that there's collaboration on on the results and on the and on the targeted ends of where people want to wind up. 
he's a he's a fascinating guy that way, and I think that's a skill which he's going to bring to the the secretariat that um, that has been missing for a long period of time. Rather than be rather than being autocratic, he, he'll bring people into the fold of all persuasions to get their point of view before a decision is made, legislation is filed, a regulation is created, whatever it might be. Um, he, he's that kind of leader, and he's shown that as a state representative, a labor leader. And certainly, as the as the mayor of the of the city of Boston. Yeah. So that's big and happening today. And I think what's imp- what's really been nice over the past couple of weeks. I said when we open uneventful, it's been purposeful and it's been policy and things moving forward and the real just sort of steady drumbeat of government uh, and politics happening with a a lot less drama um, and a lot less outside of the box things that we don't need to be thinking of there's been no erratic tweeting there's no big story it's it's been refreshing well it's 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 coming and given where we've been um it's it's really needed to settle things down a little bit so that the great divide going on in america philosophically can be softened by people talking to one another and i think that's what joe biden is counting on and that's what uh, his appointments like 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 marty walsh are counting on as well yeah. anyway Great lot happening in Congress that we'll have to catch up on next week as impeachment proceedings begin. We will be talking about that, and we'll be talking about the censuring of uh, Representative Green, the member of Congress from the, the QAnon party. Um, we'll be talking about all of that, but it'll be stabilizing. Hopefully, it'll be uh, it, it'll be it'll be calming the waters, if you will, and. Uh, America, as you said, is, is, you know, better off for it and more calmed because of it. Thanks, Cayenne. Good to talk to you and great to have you back. Thanks, Tom. Thanks. Have a good one. Bye-bye. That's it for this week's episode of OA On Air via social distancing. Thanks for tuning in. Talk to you next week.